0: Governing authorities, for there is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I wonder just in response to this passage this morning if we could say something out loud together. Can we just say, Jesus is Lord? Would you just repeat that with me? Jesus is Lord. Now just think about that for a moment. Now I'll say it again. Jesus is Lord. You know, why don't we stand? Why don't we just stand? I know we've been standing, so let's stand again. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? I'm not saying it because you sound pensive, saying it back to me, because to be quite honest with you, the way that we say this out loud in this gathering, like I understand different personality types that are here. You may feel uncomfortable saying this. This is not going to be a political rally. Don't worry, I'm not that guy. But let's say it again together Jesus is Lord. Would people be able to tell that in the way that you are in the workplace? Would people be able to tell that in the way that you interact with them in the grocery store? Jesus is Lord. What do your neighbors think? Your neighbors see law enforcement pulling up to your house for all the wrong reasons? Your neighbors hear the arguments in the backyard? Can they hear it through the sunroom? That's a screen room. People can hear you. What did they hear your life declaring? Jesus is Lord. As a church, is that what people experience when they walk in these doors? When they walk in the front door of one of our community groups, when they, when they gather together around a table for lunch after the service today, when they're hanging out at your house for movie night or for that zombie show that you like to watch, Jason Myers <laughs> and Eric Chin and Jay Lewis. Please don't ever invite me to that. Jesus is Lord. You can be seated. We're going to look at Romans chapter 13 together. But it's important that we get that part right to begin with, that Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, we're going to start looking to all the wrong things for our hope and our peace. That's actually part of Paul's point here he's he's kind of extrapolating what we have been talking about the last several weeks in Romans chapter 12 and he wants us to understand something about the love of God expressed through those who believe expressed through his church in their community in their culture especially as it relates to those who are in governance or in authority over the people he begins kind of right out of the gate. He wants to convey to us some things as it relates to the posture of a renewed heart, the, the thoughts of a renewed mind toward those who govern us. Now this week I've watched with many of you as two nations have been working through much turmoil and they are very much in the news. They're very different circumstances, but there's been a lot of talk about the governments of Haiti and of Cuba My heart goes out to our brothers and sisters there. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are in these nations that that they would hold fast to their faith in these moments. I am aware of pastors who have been thrown into jail because of standing with their flock. I am aware of pastors whose life are in peril because they stand for an authority higher than that of their government. I want their faith to be held fast to and their witness to be sure and strong in these times. I know that's your heart as well as a church. I know that that's your heart as a people. Brothers and sisters, we've had the opportunity to welcome here. And this is, this is all going on in our heart while we are all too aware of things domestically that are happening with our own government that we may agree or disagree with. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, what might our heavenly king say about how it is that we are to think or feel about government, more specifically our government? How is it that we should engage or interact, obey or dismiss Their authority in our lives. I want to make sure that I set the context for this passage correctly. See, last week or in the previous weeks, we've been building on this foundation of mercy. Foundation of the mercy of God. The mercy of God that has been shown to us when we were deserving of punishment, we received what? Instead, mercy. We can build our lives around that, that we are now filled with, because of the mercy of God, we are filled with the divine love of God. Imagine that. Objects of divine love. Vessels to carry that on mission to others. So we're called to love others in very practical ways, and all of a sudden, Paul starts talking about the government and taxes. Paul, why? Why do you go here? He's going to get super practical. Next week, we're going to see how this love, a renewed mind, a transformed heart, is love expressed toward the society or the culture that we're in. That kind of local mission you hear us talk about as a church. And can I just, I know that Truth Quest only goes up through a certain grade right now. I do just want to slap a PG-13 rating on next Sunday's message. Not because we're going to try to be crass or, or try to be, you know, kind of like say some shock statements or anything like that. The language of the remainder of Romans chapter 13 goes there. We want to understand why it goes there, so we're going to have to talk about some things. And perhaps as parents, you haven't had those conversations with your children yet. I, I would encourage you to start with those early and often don't reduce it to the talk as if it's a one-off conversation the culture around us isn't having a one-off conversation with our children on the issue of sex and so we can't do that either but if you haven't begun those you you, you lead in your own home we are here to come alongside and support uh, so I would encourage you to begin those talks If you're not ready to do that this week I certainly understand I just wanted you to be aware Of some of the content of next Sunday's message, so that's some of the context for the surrounding text and a bit of a warning for next Sunday. Maybe you're looking forward to it now. I don't. I don't know that. That's weird if that's the case. But yeah, what about the historical context of what's going on in Romans? You know, we we talked a little bit about this early on in our study, but I think it's important today to kind of remind ourselves of what's going on in the historical context of the church in Rome. They are in Rome, which means that there is a, an emperor, there is a Caesar who is leading them. And that emperor is Nero. Now, perhaps it's been a minute since you went through history, and you remember like, that wasn't one of the good ones, right? Certainly not. It was not one of the good ones. See, Nero's reign brought dark days for Christians, it brought must, much persecution and even death to Christians. Fox's Book of Martyrs describes the scene like this. In AD 67, Nero ordered the burning of Rome. The fire lasted for nine days, and when the blame turned to Nero, Nero blamed the Christians. And Nero came at the Christians with a new vengeance. Nero contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination... Could design. Now, Foxes goes on to describe in some detail what types of punishments came to believers in this time. And it was vile, it was deadly. So you may think, why would Paul take on this subject? Is it just an illustration? Is it some kind of new subject? So we're not talking about love now, we're talking about government. No, it's not a new subject. Is it maybe just a continuation of what he was saying before? Now perhaps this specific question had come up in his correspondence with the church in Rome. It's it's not clear from the text. It's not clear from historical understanding if that's the case. I think it can be helpful to think of it as an illustration of what the practical look of love is. But that can be a real challenge for us today, can't it? I think it's best to see it as a continuation of the imperatives or the commands that Paul has been building up to this point. If you were here last week, we talked about like 30 things in a row that Paul just kind of gives as the implications and the application of love. But there are some subjects that Paul touches on here that are very practical. There there actually begins in verses 1 through 4, we begin with something called common grace, the common grace of God. We begin by realizing today that there's a very real, there is a very practical common grace, and, and what I mean by that is a God's, providential kindness God's providential kindness that is poured out on the world today so the first four verses look at the the common grace of God God's providential kindness poured out on the world today and many may deny it but we actually see God's common grace and experience the good of it in so many areas including government now I'm not inhuman in preaching this it's hard for me to remember sometime as I'm punching a ballot or trying to hang a chad or trying to fill in a bubble that this is a common grace that I get to be a part of. But government is a part of the common grace of God. Why? Because verse 1 tells us it is God's established authority. Let's look at that together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, perhaps you're like me. I'm 44 years old. Did I get that age right? I have to ask my family because I don't care anymore. So I'm constantly wrong as it relates to that. I'm 44 years old. Perhaps you're like me. You've had good managers in your lifetime, and you've had bad managers in your lifetime. Bad managers tend to be the ones that their stories end up at the kitchen table most often, right? We've had good managers and bad managers in life. We have been in a place where we have been under the authority of someone else. I think about my first job at a shoe store out at Bell's Factory Outlet Mall on International Drive. It was weird, (laughs) y'all. I was hired by a good Christian manager. But then I watched an assistant manager, one of the main assistant managers in the store, who had done most of my training, the voice that I had listened to in most of my work because of the position that I had in the store. I saw him walked out in handcuffs because he'd been skimming from the till. Right out of the gate, what happens? Good managers and bad managers. Who am I? Well, I'm I'm a man under authority in that situation. We think about... Authoritative structures throughout life. There are children to parents. There are students to teachers. There are workers to managers or bosses. There are swimmers to lifeguards. We just came off vacation. That one came to mind because, like, sometimes they were annoying. It's Florida. There's lightning everywhere. Anyway. Swimmers to lifeguards, victims or perpetrators to first responders, there's citizens to law enforcements, uh, criminals to judges, and the list can just go on and on and on. And we realize that there are these authoritative structures everywhere in our culture today. But being subject or submitted to authority can be a very touchy subject. And so today we certainly realize that there are abuses of authority, but everyone submits to someone. Ephesians 6, 5 through 10 will remind us to obey and serve first as to the Lord. The rest of Scripture helps us to realize that even Christ submitted himself to the Father. Verse 1 helps us understand that any or all human authority is derived from God. Now that's not to say that that tyrants and their vile actions toward others, those who are in a dictatorial role and their actions toward others have been personally appointed by God but governing authority has been established as a part of the common grace given to the world through God's created order. And this helps us kind of separate those questions in history. It helps us separate those questions we have even in the things that we see in the world today. Now, in a few short months, we'll begin a series on the book of Genesis. And I've joked with the team, and I've joked with some friends as we've been uh, studying and preparing for this sermon series that is coming up that I feel like I could preach one of the most controversial messages in a while in the church by just focusing on the first four words of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Why would I say that? Why would I think that that's going to be something that's controversial? Because it flies in the face of our individualistic, self-determinative, autonomous selves. There God stands, eternal, before all time, the source, the authority himself. In the beginning, God. Perhaps it took you a moment even this morning to say aloud with us, Jesus is Lord, because there's something in your heart or mind that kind of bucks at that. It fights against it. Maybe you feel the temptation that I can at times. One of two extremes as a response to authority. That you're tempted to rebel against it or consider authority as your functional savior to every problem that you face. I like what Professor Michael Kruger at RTS said of this passage. He said this, if a Christian cannot submit to human authorities, why would we think they would submit to a divine one? Wow, there's something about our witness involved here, isn't there? There is something about the way that we express love to the world around us and the witness of the the love that has been placed inside of us. You see, as heavenly ambassadors who are also earthly citizens, we have a civic duty to honor governing authorities as an expression of honoring God. It goes beyond the common grace. It points to the source of that common grace, God Himself. Verses 2 through 4 are going to go on to show us that governing authorities have the authority that they have as a part of the way that sin is restrained in the world. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 together. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You know, this week as I was preparing, let me see where I put it. As I was preparing, this actually brought a story to mind from our home. I thought it might be helpful. I keep this in my office for church discipline. No, I'm uh, Guys, maybe we've got some Pirates of the Caribbean or uh, like Zorro soundtrack we can play for this. Actually, no, we don't need any other reason for, fa- uh, for some of the streaming services to, to mute our services. The sword. It's, it's a strange illustration to kind of bring out here, right? The, the sword. It's not something we see other than kind of ceremonially today, but what is Paul's point about bringing up the sword? And, and it kind of made me think about a funny story that happened in our home some time ago in, in, our, in our first home that Steph and I bought together. Uh, Sunday nights are very special for us. It used to be the night that the string reduction at the beginning of Downton Abbey let me know it was my day off. And so we'd been watching Downton. Because that's what we do. We've been watching Downton and we were kind of starting to put the house to bed for the night. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Kids are in bed, so now all of a sudden you can do all the things you haven't been able to get to for the day. It's wonderful moments. So we were beginning to put the house to bed. I think Allie might have been there with us. And all of a sudden, a strange object started floating out of our hallway into our living room. It was the tip of a sword. And I was like, what is happening? And then Caleb emerges with the sword drawn. So I, I kind of say to him, Caleb, what are you doing? He said, I heard, I heard a weird noise. So I said, Caleb, how often do you come out into the living room with a sword drawn? He said, anytime I hear a weird noise. So I was like, this is not the first time this has happened. <laughs> so the moral of the story is if you're going to break into our house, don't make any weird noises. No, that's not, that's not the moral of the story. Why wasn't I afraid of the sword floating out of my hallway that night? Caleb did ask me, in, in approving this illustration, Caleb did ask me to remind you that he was half asleep, but I can guarantee you everyone in the house was fully awake when we saw a sword floating out of our hallway that night. Why did Caleb grab the sword? It's not because he'd been on a school trip to St. Augustine and he had a cool new sword he wanted to show off. He was worried about something that he wanted to play Avenger for. There are moments we need the sword. There are moments that it's, it's a protection for us. Why didn't I fear the sword in that moment? I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was in my own house. It was shocking. But why would Paul use the sword here to help us understand his point? I wanna draw our attention to this. When we've done wrong, we deserve punishment. When others have done wrong, they deserve punishment. Sin doesn't naturally restrain itself. It's not given to by its very nature. So, government, as a part of the common grace, is a part of the restraint that is brought to sin in our world today. Now, this is not saying that we just let those who are in authority run rampant and abuse that authority. The sword is a tremendous responsibility that should be wielded and stewarded very carefully. Very carefully. Which is why we took all of Caleb's swords away. Now, you know, in our American context as a nation, this means being a part of the solution to bad governance those who do not take that authority and the sword seriously. See, vile things can be done by men or women in positions of power, and we have the opportunity to be a part of the process of holding them accountable. It's a part of our civic duty as Americans, as Christians, first and foremost, to be engaged with the political process. Here in the state of Florida, in Seminole or Orange County, in the city of Castleberry, where our church is physically located, this means that we engage with all levels of local, state, or national government amongst all three branches, the executive, the legislative, or judicial. See, these allow citizens to be a part of the political process, and it certainly means this, that we want to be a part of casting an informed vote with an informed conscience. Paul's going to get to that word in just a moment, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. But we're not going to look to the government as the source of divine healing for the sinful heart. We're not going to look to it to say the human heart has a problem. What is it that you can do to fix it? No, we know that that is God's work alone through Jesus Christ. And we can have an informed conscience through the power of Of the Holy Spirit. So, we're not going to be a people who look to the government as the functional Savior that we need for our daily need. No, we have a heavenly sovereign who provides for those needs. He is all sufficient in his ability, he is all powerful in his might and victory, and he is all generous in his provision. So, we look to him. We look to him as our source. Now, to be clear, submission doesn't mean that we always agree with the government. The government can't agree with itself. That wasn't in my notes. I just felt it in the moment. (laughs) Submission doesn't mean that we can't work to change the government. Submission doesn't mean that we must sin if the government asks us to. Submission doesn't mean that there can never be a justifiable war against a government. I say this because Paul is now going to include our conscience in the way that we honor those who are in authority Over us, And so we see in the verses 5 through 7 that Paul wants to inform in the way that we love, in the way that we engage the world around us, in the way that we honor those who are in authority, that we should have a clear conscience as a part of doing so. Notice that Scripture isn't just interested that we do something like submit. It's dealing with the heart and mind that drive what we do or affect the ways that we think about what we do. So we're going to look at this area of conscience now as it relates to government. We should recognize that a clear conscience, a biblically informed conscience is vital for the Christian life and witness. And it's vital for that in more ways than just our engagement and submission to government. Let's look at Romans chapter 13 verse 5 together. These are the tests for our conscience. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, I appreciate what R. Kent Hughes says about this issue of conscience as it relates to those who govern. He says this, we are to be in subjection Not just because we are afraid of being punished, but because unlike the world, we understand that the state is divinely instituted and the rulers are wittingly or unwittingly God's ministers. Christians are able to see the big picture and thus through their informed consciences they are able to live in profound subjection. We see the big picture. We know the end game. Sorry for the Avengers reference. Now, what is our conscience? J.I. Packer, in his book, Concise Theology, defines it this way. And can I just say, like, I believe it's right around the one-year anniversary of his passing. I appreciated an article that Crossway put out yesterday about what is the thing that should be at the center of the Christian life, the thing that's being renewed and transformed, and it says it's the Christian heart. The Christian heart and that really just goes so along with what we're talking about here today but in his book concise theology he says this conscience is the built-in power of our minds to pass moral judgments on ourselves approving or disapproving our attitudes actions reactions thoughts and plans and telling us if it disapproves of what we have done that we ought to suffer for it you know just pause here for a moment I I hear the language of shame that might just be arguing this here in this moment. Because it says that there's something in us that approves or disapproves. Can I just remind us as a church that Jesus in his all-sufficient work for us on the cross not only dealt with the effects of the fall in our sin, but he also deals with the effects of our shame by giving us a new identity in Jesus Christ. So when we read this and we're reading it and we're understanding these theological issues of conscience, let's be careful not to read back into it a shame that Jesus took care of on the cross. We are still identified as those who are believers in Jesus Christ eternally across this cosmic chasm that only he could, he could be the one that brings resolution to. But our conscience knows when we've done wrong and it knows that we deserve punishment. It's what makes mercy All the sweeter to us. We know we are deserving of punishment. Conscious has in it two elements. Back to the quote. An awareness of certain things being right and wrong and an ability to apply laws and rules to specific situations. So you realize this is is where the, the idea of shame is so powerful. Our conscience informs us we're aware of wrongdoing and Jesus alone is the solution to those things. Now, the the issue of conscience has come up in subtle ways over the last few weeks, and I think it's important to understand what God's Word says and how it equips us to keep a clear conscience. Consider these things. It's possible to sin against the conscience so that it becomes defiled. We see this in Titus chapter 1. That repeated sinning hardens the conscience so it becomes seared like scar tissue. We see this in 1 Timothy 4. So in other words, to continually reject God's truth causes the conscience to become progressively less sensitive to sin, as if it's been covered with layers of unspiritual scar tissue. May we not be a church known by people with a seared conscience. Having a healthy, clear conscience, one that's softened and fed through God's Word, includes a robust set of convictions. That is a firmly held set of beliefs that shapes our thoughts and guides our lives based on what we see about our call as believers in God's word. See, that's the main point of verses 5 and 6. He wants us to see the need for a clear conscience and convictions as it relates to the way that we interact with others. And he brings in taxes. Not only is it about submission, but there's going to be an actual physical cost to us as a part of the test of what is our heart's posture toward those. And verse 7 kind of summarizes our posture to authority in this way. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It's right for us as believers to pay personal income taxes on personal income. It's correct for businesses to be charged for licenses and tax on revenue. It's also why, f- for it's, why it's right for us to participate in the way that those funds are used through our vote, through our voice. We are to render taxes and revenues, respect and honor. Now we're going to begin to see that we're kind of in this turn that Paul is making toward language that we'll see a little bit more of in next week's sermon as it relates to private debts. So we're talking about public debts here in taxes and revenues. But there are also these private debts that Paul is beginning to change over to in Romans thirteen 8. We're going to see this next week where it says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. See, in Romans 13:8, I'll give you a little preview. Paul will begin to move from our posture toward those in government to our participation in society as a whole. But before we move on from this idea of rendering taxes, revenue, honor, respect, I think it's important not only to hear from Paul, but to consider what Jesus said. What are Jesus' words as it relates to this? Mark chapter twelve thirteen through 17 says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All the fluff and then right to the point. Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I love what the Gospel Transformation Bible notes here. It says that the disciple realizes that without the purification of the heart, other matters of life such as a proper understanding of the law of Moses, ethics, social issues, etc., they cannot be addressed in a sustainable way. The eternal Son of God must effect such purification for there to be hope of lasting personal and social change. Now, Jesus is going to turn the religious establishment on its head at the end of that chapter in Mark He's going to be consistently asking them, rather than getting entangled in these arguments about taxes and different things like that, what is it that you think about the Christ as he stands there before them? Here Jesus makes the connection between our wallet and our heart toward Christ. He's the king. He's now reigning on a victorious throne over sin, shame, death, the grave. He's the one that allows earthly rulers to rise or fall. Can we not also render to those governing bodies what is due them in taxes, fees of business dealings, respect, and honor? We don't do this because they are worthy. We offer these things as unto the Lord because he's worthy. And he calls us to treat those in authority over us in this way. I'll I'll confess, it's been difficult to prepare to preach this week because of some, maybe we can just call them this, they've been difficult to reconcile, maybe even extreme thoughts that have been lobbed at us as pastors over the past year. These aren't things that I typically talk about. And certainly, I I, want to be careful here, this is not an attempt for pity. Pity. I'm just aware that 2020's election, social justice, pandemic, and other things, 2021's issues around the 6th of January and the disgusting display that that was, continuing issues at the border, religious liberty liberty cases, the role of sciences in our society. I'm just aware that those are very difficult things to sort through. And not everyone has agreed with the church's response to those things. Here's what I'm concerned with. Our faith shouldn't rise or fall with whether, whatever news of the day is coming out of the White House, Congress, the Senate, or the Supreme Court. Perhaps if they do, it may be leading to the, revolution, uh, the revelation of something that quite frankly concerns me greatly. That is, how these can reveal a number of idols in our heart related to the broad political or systems of governance We might even call it political idolatry. When I say political idolatry, what I mean is this, that politics is rising to a level beyond the order that God created it for. It's becoming a God that we worship at the altar of in our minds and in our hearts. All of our hopes for salvation, all of our worst fears coming true. The salvation that we need in a certain way that the government can step in and address X, Y, or Z issue. See, I'd, I'd rather stay out of any topic related to government right now because of continuing issues around election gamesmanship and community organizing, issues of Christian nationalism, critical theory, or vaccines. It's exhausting, but it's revealing. See, we must be on guard. Maybe I should have said that with a sword in hand. On God. Never mind. We have to be on guard as a church. We have to look to our heavenly sovereign for guidance on love expressed to our fellow man. Those in the church community, those in the world, those who have authority over us, the, go- the gospel has very broad implications for our hearts and minds. There's also a tremendously wide application to our lives as well that that we seek to grow in and change in that from one degree of glory to another that we live in today. Today, I don't want us to be in God's word and read it based on our societal experiences over the past few years. These are very, there are very real things to grieve in the world. There are very real things to grieve in our nation today. There are also things to rejoice in and steward with great care. I don't want those things, good or bad, even the idols that are being revealed in us to become the filter through which we interpret or even worse, read something into God's Word that is not actually there. I want us to hear from, I want us to receive from the Word of God. Do you know what it's described in, in the armor of God? A sword. In my hand, a more powerful sword than I held in my hand earlier in this sermon. It's a sword, it's an offensive weapon in the armor of God. And what is it an offensive weapon for? For our hearts and our minds. It's not something to be wielded against our neighbor, it's something to be wielded against our own hearts and minds that we love them in Christian witness. I want to be trained in righteousness, as Paul tells Timothy that these scriptures do. I want to be trained in righteousness, not to find new ways to be divided in partisan or political divides. So can we make this our collective prayer today? Humbling ourselves before the word of God, the very word of the one who we said is Lord. Humbling ourselves before his word asking for wisdom in our time of need as individuals and as a nation. God has something to say to us today. It's the same thing that he'll have to say to us tomorrow no matter what it is that's happening in the world. I was reflecting on the past few weeks of messages in preparation for today. I thought about how this affects the culture of the church. It's actually been a bit of a theme already this morning in our time of worship The church universal, yes, meaning all the gathered churches around the world, those those who have collectively around the world put their faith, their saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. But I'm talking about for Metro Life Church. this, This local expression of the church. This local expression of the bride of Christ. The one who is waiting for him to return. I thought about... All of the things that we've been learning over the past few weeks about love expressed through our lives as believers and, and really in light of our receiving communion together next Sunday. When we celebrate communion, we often focus on the aspects of the table, that be the body, or the bread and the cup or the blood poured out for us. See, those Those elements, those are a sacrament that are central to the practice of communion. And earlier in worship, we were rejoicing about how it is, the tie that binds us together. We were rejoicing in that. It's a sacrament of the church, and we celebrate it regularly here. Excuse me just for a moment. We celebrate it because it matters to the unity of the church. Our ability to have fellowship with God through Christ. But it informs our fellowship with one another as well. You'll often hear us using 1 Corinthians 11 as the language to begin our time in communion together. And you may think, why are you talking about communion this week if we're going to celebrate it next week? Because I think this matters greatly for the church. And I want us to have time to just process it before we try to respond to it it matters for the uni- unity of the church but you'll hear us use 1 corinthians 11 where it begins and it says for i receive from the lord what i also deliver to you and that's a helpful liturgy that's a helpful thing for us to work through as a part of this meal of remembrance but the entire paragraph before that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a correction to the church for what? How they were interacting with one another. Now it's over different issues than politics, but I do believe that there's application here for us as a church today. What does 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen 18 through 19 say? It says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And what does Paul say? And I believe it. See, Scripture is immensely practical for us, isn't it? It's not this hushed tone. And we're going to call it out. There are divisions. And what does he do? He says, and this is how we come together. May I challenge us this week? If there are conversations over political subjects that have caused divisions with a brother or sister here at Metro Life Church, can we go to them and restore that relationship prior to next Sunday's communion together. I think that that would be appropriate. I think that that would be a part of the process of repentance, even as Mike referenced earlier. It's not just turning away from something, it's turning to something. and It's a part of the process of restoration. What is that? That is putting the relationship right. Why? Because Jesus has done that for us eternally. So there's no shame if you need to go to a brother or sister this week. There's no shame if you need to say, I need to ask your forgiveness, even if they don't know that it's coming. There's no shame in that why, because we all stand at the foot of the cross as ones who need to receive that type of salvation, that type of repentance, that type of restoration through the one who is able to provide it all. There's no shame in that here. But we must take those steps together. Why would I challenge us to do this? Because the witness of the church is at stake, even in those political conversations. Oh sure, it might be easy to say that the, that the balance of the state is, you know the, the turmoil of what we're facing in the world, that hangs in the balance in this moment. That may be true, but I'm more interested in the witness of the church. The ones called together to be heavenly ambassadors who are a part and who play a part in this world. Let's be heavenly ambassadors who act rightly in our civic duties in this world. We should take the witness of the church very seriously. And that should restrain us and provide the means to restore us one to another. Lastly, I was also considering how interesting it is that Paul uses the imagery of a sword, not one that's floating out of our hallway late at night. We see the sword throughout Scripture in a variety of ways, and I believe that the first time that we're aware of a sword in Scripture, at least in the way that our Bibles are put together today, is when an angel is wielding it as a boundary set around Eden because Adam and Eve had been cast out as a consequence of their sin the story of Scripture doesn't end there because Revelation 19 paints a prophetic picture of Christ riding a white horse with a sword against those who are His enemies as He rules as the perfect judge over the nations. His garment soaked in His blood which is our righteousness our purity, our peace with God and it's also our peace with our fellow man. With Christ's sword we're called to be on one side or the other of its use. That of our judgment or our protection for our salvation. There's a day coming, as we're told in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, where Christ will be exalted, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. What, church? Jesus is Lord. Do our lives reflect his lordship today? Let's be challenged in our thinking. Let's be challenged in our heart. Let's be challenged in our posture toward the men and women who are in government. Let's thank God for them. Let's fall to our knees in prayer for them and honor them as the servants of God that they are. Let's hold them in high regard and in their proper place since their governing of us has at its source authority that belongs to God alone. Church, would you stand with me as we sing?